Gospel reading this morning from John 1 1. You might recognize it. <laughs> John 1, verses 1 to 18. The Gospels have this, I don't know, interesting, clever way. Mark and John both start with the same words in the beginning, um, which is an interesting way to start the story in the middle, <laughs> right? And yet they pick up the very words of Genesis in the beginning. And so we come to the beginning, and who do we find, right? We find the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First time I ever preached a sermon, <laughs> it was something like a goodbye sermon. Um, it was a goodbye sermon. I was a youth pastor in San Diego and leaving and just felt I had so much to say. An hour and a half later, um, <laughs> most of the church was still there. <laughs> uh, my pastor said afterward, you know, it really is a witness to your impact in this place because very few people left in the middle. I'm going to try not to do that today. I remember the first time I found myself at that church. The sermon um, was as long as the rest of the service combined. I mean, it was, it was about 45 minutes. And the first time I was sitting there, I just remember going, what are we doing? We are really digging into probably some obscure text, if I know that pastor. Um, and I have no idea what that text was. 
Second Sunday, I showed up, and it was just as long. In fact, the first 15 minutes of the sermon were exactly the same as the previous week. He would just just recap, you know. He just wanted to make sure you were all caught up. <laughs> I think he was just trying to make his job easier by repeating himself every week. What I learned in that church is that Scripture is worthy of love. that it's worth taking your time with. And that expressions of love often do take time. We can operationalize them. We can take them and turn them into something. Where, where's the nugget? Just give me the nugget. Don't, don't make me have to sit here with you and walk through every word or even every kind of syllable again. <laughs> but when you love something, you linger with it. You walk around and you explore. And when you take your time with something that you love, you discover new angles. You discover new things to rejoice in. You discover new ways that it gives life. When you really love something, it never really gets old. And so sometimes you spend so long with something that it begins to take on a different character. It begins to take on a personal character. And this is kind of the wonder of the Word of God. We come often, many of us come to it as a holy book. Sometimes even as a kind of magical book, if I can just find the right psalm to pray, my problems will be gone. If I can just find the right words that come from here or there, I'm going to be all right. If I just leave it open and make sure it's always on the top of the book pile, right, and it doesn't touch the floor, then the Word of God will somehow soak into me. But what we find when we spend time with it, and I, and I don't mean we just kind of leave it out when we actually take it off the shelf, when we actually open up the Word, when we let the words of the Word penetrate us, we discover not a piece of literature. We discover truth. And we discover Truth, not in a way that it can be kind of processed and pressed down and, and taken and, and, and consumed, but we discover truth in a person. And John takes all of this expectation, all of this hope, and he kind of bundles it all up in one verse. And I don't know how anybody could write a word, a line like this without the work of the Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what we know of that one verse is that he is doing Greek philosophy and he is doing scriptural interpretation and he is doing discipleship and he is somehow doing even leadership in the church all there in one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Well, the problem is, is that words aren't people and people aren't words, right? Wrong. <laughs> right? 
And, and we always make the distinction between lowercase word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, and the uppercase word of God, right? Jesus, the Son himself. And we can make that distinction because we have capital letters. John didn't have capital letters. They hadn't invented yet, that yet. They hadn't thought about making letters big and small. <laughs> they just had it all there together. So they had to know from what he was saying what he meant. What is John saying with a line like that? In the beginning was the Word. And yet, what is Isaiah saying when he says something like, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, and your land shall no longer shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. The Hebrew is Hephzibah and Beulah, if you're looking for baby names. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah speaks these words to a community that has returned from exile and has tried to do everything it can to put itself back together. They're building walls. They've reestablished the temple. They've got the altar. They're doing the sacrifices, all of it, and yet it still doesn't look that good. It's still not actually that glorious. I mean, they can worship where they're supposed to worship, but it still feels like they're in kind of exile. They don't have the resources, they don't have the leadership, they don't have the capacity to build it back the way that it was. And so, even though they kind of have the, the structure there, they're still waiting for it to be filled with the real Spirit of God. They're still waiting for that structure, that format, to sort of have the power that they knew before in the Temple of Solomon when David was their leader. They're still in this time of waiting and struggling and a little bit emptiness. And what are Isaiah's words? Your land shall be called, my delight is in her, and you'll be called married. And then here comes John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We in our world often struggle with two kind of paradoxical temptations. The one is haste, right? We get hasty. We want what we want, and we want it now, right? And if somebody can give it to me, why not go there? And yet God calls us to this life of patience. The other temptation that we struggle with often is laziness. <laughs> right? That there are important things that need to be done, but we come up with reasons why they don't get done, and yet God calls us to this life urgency about things that are important. And so in the life in life in Christ we have these two things to hold together. The one is that there are some things 
that need to be accomplished that we've been called to and that Jesus calls us to step out and act on. The other is that he calls us to patience and to waiting. And we have to hold those two things together. And somehow, right here in John chapter 1, you see them happening at the same time. On the one hand, you've got faithful Israel, which has been waiting to receive Jesus, been waiting from before the time of Isaiah, right? This is hundreds of years in the making, four, five, six, seven hundred years that they have been waiting for this one who's going to be born of a virgin, this Messiah who's going to redeem them, who's going to save them from their oppressors, who's going to restore them to that kind of golden era. And God does send that Messiah. You've got faithful Israel sitting there waiting for the fulfillment of the covenant. Mary and Joseph and Anna and Simeon, and who gets pointed out here in John 1 is John the Baptist. All of them, John says, witnesses, patient witnesses to the coming Messiah. And yet everybody who's in that world and in that day actually sees John and thinks of him as the Messiah. They think that he's the one who actually brings the light. It's curious to me. Why would you think that John was the one? Well, John was drawing the crowds. John was the one who kind of looked like he had some uh, supernatural kind of thing going on. He looked real intense. He, you know, all the, all the photographs we have of him, he's got dreadlocks. He's out there kind of dressed in camel's hair and doing his thing. He's eating weird and he's living way out in the desert. He just, he just has the vibe of somebody that God is speaking to, right? You like those guys with the big beards. They just feel, it feels like there's something there. And that's what it was about John. People want something different. I, I think, I think, I think this is because, in part, people want a leader, people want a Messiah who is going to be a human like me, but has been elevated and lifted up. In some way, has kind of become godlike. Somebody who's taken the next step upward on the spiritual path. We want that kind of leader. And so we look for people who, who have kind of been lifted up who we can look up to, <laughs> a kind of superman. <laughs> we look for people who have this extraordinary holiness where it's like God has elevated them beyond the sort of natural into the supernatural. But that's not the kind of leader that God has promised. And that's not the kind of leader that God has given us. Yeah, John comes, and Anna and Simeon come, and Mary and Joseph are there, and they're extraordinarily holy people, but their holiness is more in their ability to wait. It's more in their ability to witness to something, to, to just point to something that's beyond themselves. Instead, the picture that God gives his people is of a covenant. The picture he gives them in Isaiah 61 in 62, which, by the way, is the fulfillment of the passage that Jesus reads in Nazareth when he first stands up in that synagogue. He reads the first half of chapter 61. Now we're getting to the second half of chapter 61 and the beginning of chapter 62. 
The promise that he gives them is not that he's going to take, it's not that he's going to take their sort of natural human nature and elevate it. That's not where it starts. It starts with, I'm going to come and be among you. It's not, I'm going to lift up the lowly, but I'm actually going to come down. And this is the promise that he gives, a promise of marriage, a promise of covenant, a promise of a watered field that bears fruit, which is a big metaphor for children (laughs) and a harvest. The image that God gives his people is, is not simply of raising them up, but that he is going to come low and be with them and walk among them. The promise that gets fulfilled in Christ is that God comes and walks with his people, that he spends time with them, that he lingers with them, that he looks around and notices the nooks and crannies, that he lives as a member of a family, that he, the the eternal God, the the Word made flesh, the, the, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Right? The begotten Son. Like this, God comes and becomes one of us and spends time in our creation. The, the, The God who is the creator all of a sudden takes to himself something that he is not. He becomes creation. This is unbelievable. It's staggering. No other no other religion claims this about God. That he walks around. You linger with those that you love, right? And for 30 years, we don't even know what Jesus is doing. Walking around. Knowing people's name. Going to the barber. Popping by the grocery store and coming home. Just seeing how people interact. Going to church. What do you think Jesus is doing when he's 18, 19, 20 years old? He's showing up to synagogue. making tables and chairs. (laughs) Jesus, the creator, becomes part of the creation. And the picture that he gives us is of a family, of a bride and a groom which meet and are one, which in their feeding and caring for one another bear forth children. It's a family living out virtue in this counter-cultural way. You might say it's a family of kingdom character, right? You might say it's a family that knows that it belongs to each other and that lives to learn in the way of Christ. This is the image, this is the picture, not only that God gives us, but that he lives out himself and invites us into. And I know on the one hand it's hard to say that, Not all of us have families. Not all of us have good families. (laughs) Even those of us who have good families, those families have kind of a, they have a limit. They can only give so much. So what's being said here in part, what's being said is that we are invited, like Paul says in Galatians, we are invited into the eternal family of God to be heirs, not of our natural fathers and mothers, but to be heirs with Christ of this eternal kingdom. And regardless of what your 
physical family is life. That's the family that you are invited into. That's the family where you find your fulfillment. And there's no barrier. There's no genetic, ethnic, age barrier to becoming an heir in that family. You are welcomed into it and encouraged to participate in it. The challenge for so many of us to actually enter into that covenant. How do we do it? John told us what to do. Go and be baptized. (laughs) To go out to John and see him in the wilderness and get inspired by his preaching and then get baptized by him was to go out and begin to live this new life, but John is dead. (laughs) And he's gone. So how are we to live this covenant? We live this covenant in Christ. We enter into this covenantal love when we accept Christ's love for us in the cross, when we trust that Christ being raised from the dead enables us to live this new eternal life even now, even here. That he enables our own souls and hearts to be raised from the dead. That he prepares us spiritually and in that process of sanctification, physically, emotionally, to live in the kingdom of God. That the spirit that was poured out at Pentecost was not kind of just limited to that time and place. No, the spirit that God gave through his son to proceed from the Father is, is a spirit that is present here even now. It's the spirit that we trust in and that we put ourselves at the feet at saying, Lord, I need you to fill me. Would you forgive and empower me? We enter into this covenantal love even as we love one another. When you become an heir of something, yeah, you get something, right? (laughs) But you also have responsibility for something. To be the heir of a household is to be required to take care of that household, right? And so, for us to be heirs of the kingdom of God in Christ is to say, we actually have to take care of the kingdom of God, even now. Which means we look across the aisles and we don't just see people we, you know, we're okay talking to, but maybe we want to avoid a little bit. (laughs) No, we look around this room and, and we trust that the people in this room are people that we have responsibilities for, whether in prayer or physically, that we have loving responsibilities to take care of one another. We have a responsibility, like Christ, not just to say, how can I get lifted up, but how low can I go? Because that's the gospel. The gospel is not simply that God took people who didn't deserve it and put them in a place they weren't ready for. The gospel is that God, in his mercy, entered into our world So the question that we take as we look out at the world is not just how can I lift the world up, but how can I go low to be with the world? So the church speaks hope and belonging to those who are poor. Because I don't want to preach for an hour and a half, I'll just say this shortly. What a gift it is to be a part of a church that understands that, that lives that. those we care for in our own midst, outside of our walls, in our community, 
We don't care for them because they're someone else or because we're doing a good deed or because we've got extra charity to throw around. We care for them because in them we meet Christ. In them we meet the creator of the world. And it might seem strange, and I can tell you oftentimes it's very, very strange. But we meet the Lord when we spend time with those who are in need. When we speak hope and a word of belonging. We meet the Lord when we challenge those who are wealthy and satisfied with their lives. I had a friend who lived in a what shall be unnamed area of Sacramento that was, uh, nobody here, uh, known for its wealth and comfort. <laughs> and he said, this neighborhood is exactly what you would want. It's People walk out, they're safe. At, it's ha- at Halloween, it's safe. They're knocking on every door. There's plenty of places to spend all your free time. Uh, it's just a good place to be on the outside. They said, you know what, spiritually, it was a complete desert. People were so satisfied with themselves and with their external life that they never took any care of who they were internally. They were distracted enough to be able to avoid the real questions in life. That's not every wealthy person, but it's a lot of wealthy persons. And it's something we've got to take care to face. In our own hearts, where are we so satisfied with our world that we just push off all of our discomfort. That we're able to say, boy, I don't feel very good today. Fortunately, there's something to watch. Right? Boy, I'm kind of struggling. Fortunately, I don't actually have to face that. We can be and ought to be and are a church that speaks a word of challenge to those who are wealthy and satisfied with their life. Not because we want to be mean but because we know that life goes so much deeper and is so much richer than a life that just avoids pain. God has called us into the riches of his love and blessed are the poor in spirit. May we all come to find what it means to be poor in spirit. The church, this church, our church, you, are God's offering to the world. So as we go out into the world, we go out as those who are called to go low. That the world might encounter Christ in us. The thing we've got to do is to listen to Christ and to his voice. To learn Christ and his voice. To be able to discern, like John will say later, difference between the good shepherd and all those other shepherds. This Christ who will lead us into glorious and even strange places. This is the uh, last Sunday of the year. It's the last day of the year. And for the last several years, we've, we've done what we call a covenant service. It comes from John Wesley. Um, Back in the 1700s, he used to do these with his original Methodist congregations. And I'm nicer than he is. He would make them stay up all night on New Year's Eve and do it at midnight. So you're welcome. Um, right? 
But, but it's, it's a way of us coming to the Lord and saying, look, Lord, I, I know that not only are you the one who loves me, but I need to renew my covenant with you, not because you've gone anywhere, but because oftentimes over the course of the year, I'm the one who moves. Because oftentimes my heart drifts and fades in a different direction. And Lord, I need you to guide and direct me into your kingdom. And so that's what these prayers are. They're prayers of saying, look, Lord, I know that you came low. I know that you entered into our world. I know that you've called us into a, a marriage relationship with you. This relationship of bride and, and groom, of church and Christ. I know, Lord, that you've called us into a life of renewal and fruitfulness. And so we come ready to present ourselves to the Lord, ready to even confess. So there will be some prayers here that we read together, and I, and I would ask you to, they will be, most of them will be up on the screen. The final prayers will be here. And the idea with this prayer is that you can take it, you look on the back, you can even sign it and stick it in your Bible so that you have a record of your covenant. <laughs> right? That you can remember all year the covenant that you made with Christ, this personal, we might call it a recommitment to life in Christ. I'll warn you that some of these words are intense. Uh, they are not um, flinching when it comes to seeing our own sin. But I, I would encourage you to lean into that repentance, to not be a people who hide from the call of God on our lives not be a people who try to duck and dip and dodge and dive away from the fact that we are sinful, but to be willing to cry out, Lord, have mercy. I'll also say in the Nazarene context, sometimes we feel weird about admitting that we've sinned. We get so focused on our sanctification that we miss the sort of everyday work of repentance that's necessary to keep that alive. And it has nothing to do with God's unfaithfulness. It has everything to do with the depth of transformation that God is working to provide in us. So, let me come down here. <laughs> there will be a point here at the end, too, where you're encouraged to either bow or kneel. Bow your heads, kneel on the ground, um, I just encourage you to do whatever you feel God has called you to do in that moment. So let me pray with us. Oh God, searcher of all our hearts, you have formed us as a people and claimed us for your own. As we come to acknowledge your sovereignty and grace and to enter anew into covenant with you, reveal any reluctance or falsehood within us. Let your spirit impress your truth on our inmost being and receive us in mercy for the sake of our mediator, Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I will read, this is called the a Litany of Thanksgiving here. And you, you'll notice, by the way, that the picture here is of Moses coming down from Sinai. There's a reason for that, right? Those Ten Commandments are the covenant. Uh, they're a sign and a symbol of the covenant. So, let us give thanks for all of God's mercies, O God, our covenant friend. You have been gracious to us through all the years of our lives. We thank you for your loving care, which has filled our days and brought us to this time 
and place. We praise your name, O Holy God. You have given us life and reason and set us in a world filled with your glory. You have comforted us with family and friends and ministered to us through the hands of our sisters and brothers. We praise your name, O God. You have filled our hearts with a hunger after you and have given us your peace. You have redeemed us and called us to a high calling in Christ Jesus. You have given us a place in the fellowship of your spirit and the witness of your church. We praise your holy name, O God. You have been a light in in darkness and a rock of strength in adversity and temptation. You have been the very spirit of joy in our joys and the all-sufficient reward in all our labors. We praise your holy name, O God. You remembered us when we forgot you. You followed us even when we tried to flee from you. You met us with forgiveness when we returned to you for all your patience and overflowing grace. We praise your holy name, O God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Christian life is redeemed from sin and is consecrated to God. Through baptism we have entered into this life and have been admitted into the new covenant of which Jesus Christ is the mediator. He sealed it with his own blood that it might last forever. On the one side, God promises to give us new life in Christ, the source and perfecter of our faith. On the other side, We are pledged to live no more for ourselves, but only to Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. From time to time, we renew our covenant with God, especially when we reaffirm the baptismal covenant and gather at the Lord's table. Today, however, we meet as the generations before us have met to renew the covenant that binds us to God. Let us make this covenant of God our own. Commit yourselves to Christ as his servant. Give yourselves to him that you may belong to him. Christ has many services to be done. Some are more easy and honorable. Others are more difficult and disgraceful. Some are suitable to our inclinations and interests. Others are contrary to both. (laughs) In some ways, we may please Christ and please ourselves. But then there are other works where we cannot please Christ, except by denying ourselves. It is necessary, therefore, that we consider what it means to be a servant of Christ. Let us, therefore, go to Christ and pray. Let me be your servant under your command. I will no longer be my own. I will give up myself to your will in all things. Be satisfied that Christ shall give you your place and work. Lord, make me what you will. I put myself fully into your hands. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and with a willing heart give it all to your pleasure and disposal. Christ will be the Savior of none but his servants. He is the source of salvation to those who obey. Christ will have no servants except by consent. Christ will not accept anything except full consent to all that he requires. Christ will be all in all or he will be nothing. Confirm this by a holy covenant. To make this covenant a reality in your life, listen to these admonitions. First, set apart some time, more than once, to be spent alone before the Lord in seeking earnestly God's special assistance and gracious acceptance of you, in carefully thinking through all the conditions of the covenant, in searching your hearts, whether you have already freely given your life to Christ, consider what your sins are. Consider the laws of Christ, how holy, strict, and spiritual they are, and whether you, after having carefully considered them, are willing to choose them all. Be sure you are clear in these matters. 
see that you do not lie to God. Second, be serious in a spirit of holy awe and reverence. Third, claim God's covenant. Rely upon God's promise of giving grace and strength so you can keep your promise. Trust not your own strength and power. Fourth, resolve to be faithful. You have given to the Lord your hearts. You have opened your mouths to the Lord and have dedicated yourself to God. With God's power, never go back. And last, be then prepared to renew your covenant with the Lord. Fall down on your knees, lift your hands toward heaven, open your hearts to the Lord as we pray. I invite you to kneel or bow. And this prayer is on your paper. If you're bowing your head, uh, you're welcome to read along in that way. O righteous God, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, see me as I fall down before you. Forgive my unfaithfulness in not having done your will, for you have promised mercy to me. If I turn to you with my whole heart, God requires that you shall put away all your idols. I here from the bottom of my heart renounce them all, covenanting with you that no known sin shall be allowed in my life. Against your will I have turned my love toward the world. In your power I will watch all temptations that will lead me away from you, for my own righteousness is riddled with sin, unable to stand before you. Through Christ God has offered to be your God again if you would let him. Before all heaven and earth, I here acknowledge you as my Lord and God. I take you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for my portion and vow to give up myself, body and soul, as your servant to serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of my life. God has given the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way and means of coming to God. Jesus, I do here on bended knees accept Christ as the only new and living way and sincerely join myself in covenant with him. O blessed Jesus, I come to you, hungry, sinful, miserable, blind, and naked, unworthy even to wash the feet of your servants. I do here with all my power accept you as my Lord and head. I renounce my own worthiness and vow that you are the Lord, my righteousness. I renounce my own wisdom and take you for my only guide. I renounce my own will and take your will as my law. Christ has told you that you must suffer with him. I do here covenant with you, O Christ, to take my lot with you as it may fall. Through your grace I promise that neither life nor death shall part me from you. God has given holy laws as the rule of your life. I do here willingly put my neck under your yoke to carry your burden. All your laws are holy, just, and good. I therefore take them as the rule for my words, thoughts, and actions, promising that I will strive to order my whole life according to your direction and not allow myself to neglect anything I know to be my duty. The Almighty God searches and knows your heart. O God, you know that I make this covenant with you today without guile or reservation. If any falsehood should be in it, guide me and help me to set it aright. And now glory be to you, O God the Father, whom I from this day forward shall look upon as my God and Father. Glory be to you, O God the Son, who have loved me and washed me for my sins in your own blood, and now is my Savior and Redeemer. Glory be to you, O God the Holy Spirit, who by your almighty power have turned my heart from sin to God. O mighty God, 
the Lord Omnipotent, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have now become my covenant friend, and I, through your infinite grace, have become your covenant servant. And so be it. Let the covenant I have made on earth be ratified in heaven. Amen.